This is a podcast about racial violence, their descriptions of lynchings, and its modern-day expressions. This material may not be suitable for all audiences. Support for The Red Record comes from the Lynching Sites Project, a Memphis nonprofit dedicated to creating a new legacy of racial equity and justice by turning the light of truth on lynchings in the Shelby County, Tennessee area. Welcome to the first season of The Red Record, a podcast to share the stories of victims of racial terror lynchings in the Memphis area in an effort to uncover the whole truth of our history so we can pursue understanding and healing for our future. We are your hosts, Laura Faith Cabetta and Rich Watkins. This is part two of answering the question, what is lynching? In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Beth Lou Williams, a Princeton University professor who has studied anti-Asian American violence and the similarities and differences between lynching in the American West and South. So I'm Beth Lou Williams. I'm an associate professor of history at Princeton University, and I teach um, 19th century uh, American West, and I particularly focus on Asian American history. So my book is called The Chinese Must Go, Violence, Exclusion, and the Making of the Alien in America. It thinks through the role of violence in the creation of border control. So the Chinese were the first group, um, first nationality and race to be singled out, to be excluded from immigrating to the United States. A lot of our immigration law and policy are still based on Chinese exclusion in the 19th century. And so what I tried to do in my work was um, talk about the role of violence in all of this, because previously people had, had studied Chinese exclusion Um, and said, well, you know, people didn't like the Chinese for all these reasons, they were racist, they had these fears of the Chinese, but they really, they had taken at their word the people that were involved in the anti-Chinese movement, that these were lawful protests, that they were within the law and had justice on their side. And so what I saw instead when I looked at archival sources was that the the movement for Chinese exclusion against Chinese immigration was a very violent one. And that that violence is one of the reasons that Congress and the federal government paid attention to the West. Um, uh, So the violence had effects on, on local Chinese people and their daily lives, but it also had effects that, um, essentially excluded the Chinese for 60 years um, and stunted the Chinese American community. And it's one of the reasons that so few Asian Americans today can sort of date their um, their family back multiple generations in this country. It's why Asian Americans are still seen as newcomers to the United States and why sort of images or stereotypes that were prevalent in the 19th century that the Chinese were in assimilable um, forever foreign are still sort of images of Asian Americans more broadly um, to this to this day. So let's talk a little bit about the history of Asian American violence in the U.S. You know, how, how did it start? How was it perpetuated in, in what you've seen in your research? Well, you know, unfortunately, when 
you can date anti-Asian violence back to when Asians first came to the United States. And so the largest, earliest cohort of Asians were Chinese that were arriving um, to California for the gold rush. And so they arrived along with prospectors from the Eastern United States, but also, you know, countries throughout the world, uh, Latin America. Uh, and they uh, faced violence in the in the mining regions. Um, and this violence takes various forms. At first, I think a lot of it is um, disorganized and sporadic. Um, it takes, I think we could call some of that violence crime. So it's uh, attempting to steal things from a Chinese migrants uh, attempting to take over property or mines that they are working at. And how did um, lynching uh, play a part in in that particular time period of, like you said, that, that wave of violence? Yeah, so I think to answer that question, we have to think about how we wanted to find lynching, which has been such a controversial thing for, for historians, because I think, you know, earlier histories of lynching, you really used the um, violence against African-Americans in the late 19th century and into the Jim Crow era as sort of the template of what lynching looks like. Um, and t- to be honest, that that degree of violence, that kind of violence is, is really distinct. Um, and so if we use sort of the, you know, the, the lethal, um, often um, hangings that we see of African-Americans at that time um, in large numbers and often in sort of public ways in order to, you know, a lot of this is sort of spectator violence where um, the, the violence is enacted in front of large crowds and um, in, in order, historians argue, to sort of teach lessons about place in society. So that kind of violence is very particular. And I don't really think that we can say we see the same kinds of lynching elsewhere. Although historians have also said, um, historians continue to argue about this. Um, So when I do my work, what I call the violence against Chinese, I call almost all of it, you know, vigilante violence, racial violence. I don't often use the word lynching because I think we have this very particular connotation. Um, but that's not what all historians do. Some historians, you know, use a much broader definition of lynching um, and include, for example, the sort of social regulation of criminals that we see, uh, you know, ac- across American history. Anything that is extra legal is done as part of a, a group action um, is seen as lynching. And so if we do that, we can see that uh, white people were lynched, uh, Mexican-Americans were lynched, Chinese were lynched um, by, you know, no, non-state actors um, involved in, in hangings or other sort of mob lethal violence. But I think that the lynching that we traditionally think of in the, in, for the African-American community is not social regulation in that sort of broad sense of criminality. It is a it rises to the level of political terrorism where you're attempting to terrorize an entire community through acts of violence. Um, So the Chinese, it's really different. The violence uh, has a different racial logic to it. 
and it has a different method and it has a different effect. So the racial logic, I think it's important to note that for African-Americans, if I'm talking really broad generalities, a lot of the violence was about keeping people in their place. So sort of stay in town because we need your labor, but do not, you know, you know, don't exhibit any social mobility, don't participate in politics, don't assume leadership roles, you know, so it's about keeping people down. Uh, In a broad sense, the anti-Chinese violence is more about um, keeping people out. So there's trying to get the Chinese out of these individual towns and cities, that they are unwanted as laborers because they're seen as competition. And so uh, that's why this violence then takes the form of expulsion more often than a sort of a spectacular uh, uh, lynching. And then the effects are really different as well. So this, the violence of expulsion uh, is not nearly as lethal, although um, in the period I look at during this outbreak between 1885 and 1886, I documented about 85 Chinese who were killed in the process. So it's not, it's not, not lethal, but it's, that's not the primary purpose of the violence. It's mostly a, attempts at driving out. And I think for the Chinese, it was, this violence was meant also as a political message that, that through immigration control, the federal government needed to not only, um, it wasn't just that the Chinese needed to not be our neighbors, like out of our backyard, but that they need to be kept out of the country as well. Um, yeah, so I think I've, that's a really long way to say, I think these are really different kinds of violence. I think it's, it's productive to compare them, but I don't usually use the word lynching. I focus particularly on the 1880s um, because there was this unprecedented outbreak of anti-Chinese violence. Um, in the 1880s at the time, there was a feeling that Chinese laborers were competing for jobs in the West Coast. Um, and the federal government had attempted to exclude Chinese immigrants. They passed the Restriction Act of 1882 and tried to sort of label the Chinese as undesirable and, and tried to bar them. Um, it's sort of in the wake of the failure of that act, the continued migration of Chinese migrants and continued fears, economic and racial, in the mid-1880s that there's this um, outbreak of violence. And so in my work, I documented 168 communities that attempted to expel the, the Chinese from their community. Um, and they expelled the Chinese in many ways. For example, they sometimes a community would set a deadline by which the Chinese had to vacate town. Um, others um, burned down Chinatowns. That was a very common thing or just sort of rounding up people um, and sort of going door to door and, and bringing them out into the street and then force marching them out of town. And so that period is particularly violent. Um, and, and I'm interested in why, why that is. Um, but the truth is that daily life could also be violent for the Chinese in the 19th century. And how was that um, I guess, reinforced or um, uh, perpetuated as time went on. It sounds like there was, you know, some state encouragement um, of this kind of violence. 
Yeah, I think it it raises a larger question about how to understand racial violence in the late 19th century, because um, so these expulsions that I look at are not officially state sanctioned. So they're not officially, you know, they're not under the cover of law or justice in any official capacity. But there's a lot of uh, state actors that are involved. So, for example, I write a, a fair amount about the expulsion from Tacoma in Washington Territory. And this was a vigilante action, but if, you know, the the vigilantes pose for a photograph afterwards, and the photograph, you see in it uh, the mayor of Tacoma, the sheriff, uh, the probate judge, the head of the newspaper, you know, the fire chief. You know, these these are not only leading men of the community, but men that represent the local government. There are one-off incidents where we see lynching in the Chinese community. And so in my book, I um, have one image of a, of a hanging of a Chinese man. Um, I included it in part because, you know, um, I feel like we don't have a historical memory of what anti-Chinese violence looked like during this time period. I think that images of anti-black violence is is like dis- is disturbingly ubiquitous and and sort of um, which is a whole is a different problem. But I think for the Chinese, we don't even have an image of this. So I did include an image of a hanging, and it's of a seventeen-year-old boy who was lynched in Calusa, California, in eighteen eighty-seven, and. Um, He's hung from a railroad turnstile and he's barefoot and young and he's wearing jeans. He looks kind of like he could walk down the street today. Like he looks very um, like approachable and 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 human. And I think that I include a photo like that just to remind us that these there were moments of lynching. He had been accused of murdering his mistress. He was a domestic servant. There was a manhunt for him, and he was brought before a, a judge and a jury and found guilty. Um, and then he was sentenced to, to um, life in prison. And so then we see in this case that the community thought that this was um, not a satisfactory form of justice. Um, especially since he had alleged that the murderer involved, basically he he defamed the the his mistress in the process of his defense, um, suggesting that she had had a, an affair, a white woman, um, and so he was dragged out of jail um, and lynched by the community. And so there we see, you know, in this one incidence, I think some clear overlap. Um, where we see the protection of sort of the image of the of the white woman and her purity being used to rally a mob against a non-white person um, in a sort of group mentality, um, and and in order to teach lessons to a larger community, because the image that I use is a postcard that was um, you know professionally photographed and then sold, and so I think that this is an example where that one act of violence uh, could teach larger lessons, racial lessons about what white supremacy meant um, to the larger Chinese community. Thank you for listening to The Red Record presented by the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis. 
The mission of the Lynching Sites Project is to collaborate with others to cultivate courageous conversations and programs that uncover the whole truth of racial terror and violence and change the narrative in Shelby County, leading to understanding, compassion, and healing while working toward racial equality and justice. We do this by identifying lynching victims and sites to place markers at their locations and foster courageous conversations during our community meetings. To find out more and to donate, please visit our website at lynchingsitesmem.org. That's lynchingsitesmem.org. I thought it was really interesting what you said about the time period that you are looking at um, of violence against Chinese Americans right after the Civil War or a couple decades removed um, and how that's also when lynching in the South really started to to steamroll and pick up. Um, I'm curious if you've seen any evidence of those two phenomenons, you know, in a sense, talking to each other, connecting as a way of enforcing white supremacy. Yes, there's some indication that um, that there's communication around this. I, I mean, I think there's multiple reasons that we see sort of a peak of anti-Chinese violence, uh, really, when lynching um, is becoming so common in the South, or at least the beginning of it. Um, I think there's a couple of things. One is there's some of the same people involved. People come from the South and go West, uh, sort of some of the same people that are Confederate soldiers, you know, end up in the Indian Wars and then end up in my Chinese expulsion story as well. So it, sometimes it's actually the same people. Um, but then also clearly, if you look at newspapers, you can tell that people are are aware of various kinds of racial violence or what they think of as, you know, I think a lot of these vigilantes thought of it as justice, right? So there's concepts of how um, to enact justice uh, in the South with a, a, a concept of an unruly black community, a new black citizenship that's newly threatening in this way. And then there are concepts of the, you know, the Wild West as also a place where justice is not in being enforced by the government and therefore needs to be enforced uh, by the people. And so that rhetoric does circulate and I think there's they're drawing um, inspiration from each other. But I also think that it has to do with what the federal, the federal government's choices during this time period. Uh, so I think it's more familiar to people often the the history of the fall of Reconstruction in the South that um, for a while radical Republicans in Congress insisted on on Reconstruction and um, there was a you know all too brief moment where the federal government was trying at least to ensure political rights for African Americans. And then um, after 1877, really, the federal government uh, stops even trying um, and allows the Redeemer South to uh, sort of take over the show to very violent ends. So what I, I think that story is more familiar, but similar things are happening in the West where I see a similar move from the 
federal government sort of throwing up its hands and saying local um, local desires clearly are that the Chinese um, are an undesirable presence in the West. Um, no longer are there radical Republicans preaching ideas of racial equality, at least loudly enough that they can hear it. Um, and so the federal government just sort of gives in, <laughs> is one way to say it, uh, to anti-Chinese violence and thinks about it as, you know, the way to solve the problem of anti-Chinese violence um, and, and unrest is to give in to the demands of the local people, which is to keep Chinese out. So instead of trying to suppress this violence, the federal government locates the problem as these racial others and tries to eliminate them from the, from the social picture. There's other kinds of violence that were state-sanctioned at the time against Chinese. So some of my research has to do with tax collection. And at the time, tax collection could be a really violent business. So for example, I've been reading the diary of a tax collector who was set to um, collect taxes from foreign miners, and which at the time uh, was sort of code language for the Chinese. And, and so what he would do is every month, um, he would set out in the dark at night uh, to try to find Chinese camps of Chinese. Um, he, he hunted them at night, I think, because it was a, more difficult for them to, to disperse or to see him coming. And so he would round up other, he was a deputized um, official, but he would round up other members of the white community to go with him and just descend on a Chinese camp at night and demand the tax. And if there was any sort of resistance, um, there was often violence that followed. Um, and so it's really vivid when we read sources like the diary of this man, uh, you get a sense of how violent, just things that we don't even think of as violent could be like tax collection. What's the effect on um these communities as I mean like where did they go you know if they're if they're uh being marched out um what happened after that um they went lots of places so so for example because I talked about Tacoma earlier in Tacoma they were um rounded up and force marched eight miles out of town to the nearest railroad depot uh two people died on that forced march um, and then at the nearest railroad depot, they were put on a train to Portland, which doesn't sound that far away. It's kind of interesting that they weren't sent farther away. An attempt in um, Seattle, um, they put them on boats to San Francisco. Um, you know, so often it was very like local action, not in my backyard. But the cumulative effect, I think, had sort of two... two um, overall patterns to it. One is um, increased segregation for the Chinese. So the Chinese, I think, attempted to look for strength in numbers. So they went to a large ethnic enclaves like San Francisco Chinatown when they were fleeing this violence. And so uh, there's reports at the time that uh, 10,000 new Chinese residents show up, showed up in, in San Francisco in the midst of the violence in California. 
And then I think there's also, though, a pattern of dispersal. So there, this violence that was concentrated on the West Coast, where most Chinese people lived at the time, meant that a lot of Chinese migrants attempted going um, farther east. So they went to the Midwest or to the East Coast. And so what's interesting about this is I do see a parallel here, right? So because I think that the violence of lynching in the South, we see a similar pattern of segregation on the one hand locally, and then the great migration. Um, and so I think there's actually some parallels there. When we're looking at violence, it's really important to, you know, to reconstruct and sit with the, the lives of the people lost to racial violence, but then there are so many effects on the survivors and like the whole adjacent community. And I see that very clearly in the, the case in the South, African-American community has, has rippling effects. And so really inspired by that sort of research was one of the things that made me try to look um, for the same thing in the Asian-American community. Because I think, you know, for for... For every, you know, victim we can count and we can put a site on where they were killed and things. There are so many other people that will never know what their relationship was to that person and that death, um, but but they're affected as, as well. What do you think would be different today if we as a society knew this history of violence against Asian Americans better? Well, I guess I've Ooh, I have so many hopes for things that could go better. You know, I think I think some of the lessons we can draw from this history, you know, one of the clear ones is about, um, you know, that our immigration system was born in racial violence. And so it should not surprise us that it continues to have racially discriminatory effects today. And so I think we really need to reappraise um, the, our current day immigration system. I also think that knowing more about this history would help people, um, you know, recognize the long history of Asian Americans in this country. You know, I, I worry a lot about the way that Asian Americans are seen as um, outsiders, are marginalized, are seen as foreigners, even now. Um, and I think that that's become even stronger with the pandemic and COVID. You know, a lot of the anti-Chinese sentiment that is uh, repeated right now is based on ideas of the Chinese being foreign, um, when in truth we have vibrant Chinese American communities, um, both recent and, and long past. Um, and then I also think that it's important for us to think again about the history of white supremacy in the country. I think white supremacy is often seen as an unmovable object that comes in particular forms. And I think that the historians are working really hard to broaden and, and differentiate different strains of white supremacy because I think that, you know, for example, anti-blackness is, is distinct forms of thought and action, as I said before, and so is anti-Asian or anti-Chinese versus anti-Filipino. You know, these are all, they're all forms of white supremacy, but I think that we lose something if we lump them all together um, or we come up with shorthands that sort of suggest that they're the same thing. 
And so I think knowing more about anti-Asian violence is important um, in part because it is so, it is different. And I think that it will therefore uh, push us to expand our understanding of what white supremacy is. This podcast is produced by Rich Watkins, Laura Faith Cabetta, and board members of the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis. It's edited by Madeline Plaster. The music is performed by Laura Faith Cabetta and includes excerpts from the books of American Negro Spirituals by James Weldon Johnson and J. Rosamond Johnson. To learn more about lynchings in Shelby County, visit www.lynchingsitesmem.org and follow us on Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. In the show notes, you'll find a link to Dr. Beth Lou Williams' book, The Chinese Must Go, Violence, Exclusion, and the Making of the Alien in America. The name of our podcast, The Red Record, honors the name of Ida B. Wells' book that documented lynchings across the country and revealed the racist motivations of thousands of killings.